Today's conversation is brought to you by NAF Press. NAE President Emeritus Leith Anderson once said, if the Bible were written today, it would read like the message. And that is why the Message New Testament Reader's Edition lets you read the Bible like the bestseller it is. Designed like a novel, you can enjoy the continual flow and beauty of scripture, free of verse numbers and references. Perfect for outreach or any Christian ready to dive into the life-changing stories of Jesus. Take a look inside the Message New Testament Reader's Edition at messagebible.com. But one of the tricks of high conflict is that the most extreme voices get louder and louder and louder. And everybody else kind of flees the scene. So I think it's incumbent on us, all of us who are exhausted with the conflict we're seeing, who want something better, to speak up. And when you see someone from your group, maybe it's your political party or your town, whatever, actively try to resist the pull of high conflict. Maybe by, you know, stating a truth that people don't want to hear and trying to do it in a way that is hearable. Really try to support that person. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and to navigate today's complexity with biblical clarity. Today, I talk with Amanda Ripley, an investigative journalist and New York Times best-selling author. Her most recent book, High Conflict, examines how disagreements devolve into a good versus evil, us versus them mentality, and what is needed to move past that mentality. We are seeing this deep division. This conversation will help us understand what to do about it in our communities. Amanda, it's a real pleasure to connect with you. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me, Walter. It's good to be here. Well, many people want to avoid conflict or at least to Mm -hmm. avoid thinking about conflict. So how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, you know, I think it's the kind of thing that um, I, I had thought I always I had always thought that I had no problem with conflict because as a journalist, you're constantly writing about conflict, right? And what I found is that actually there was a lot about conflict I did not understand. So for me, this all starts about five or six years ago when I started to realize that journalism just wasn't functioning the way it was supposed to. Like it felt, it felt broken. And I've been doing it for 20 years for Time Magazine, different places. And, um, And it just seemed like anything I might do was either going to make our political conflict worse or have no impact at all. (laughs) And so I decided to sort of stop what I was doing and spend some time trying to understand conflict from people who understand it deeply, but differently than journalists. And I followed, you know, conflict mediators, negotiators, uh, ministers, rabbis, gang violence interrupters, all kinds of people who are really intimately familiar with conflict and discovered that there's a whole other level of conflict that I had not understood. And it was actually much more interesting and useful than the kind of superficial, he said, she said conflict that, that we were doing a lot of and continue to do a lot of uh, in the media. 
so we all experience conflict, but we all don't study conflict. And, um, you know, we're often baffled when talking about an issue and someone sees it the opposite way. This is true in politics, as you've noted. It's also true at work or at home. What actually happens when a healthy conversation over differences be becomes a battle? Yeah, so it turns out that the kind of conflict you're in really matters, right? So there's a place called the Difficult Conversations Lab that I got to visit as part of this um, at Columbia University. And they've hosted over 500 strained, awkward, contentious conversations between strangers over big, you know, big profound differences uh, over abortion, gun control, Israel, other things. And one of the things they learned is that you can roughly put all of the different conversations into two buckets. Um, in some of the conversations, people felt angry and frustrated, but then they also had flashes of curiosity and understanding and even humor, and then back to anger and frustration, right? But they asked more questions of each other and they left the lab more satisfied. So that is what we would call good conflict. That's the kind of conflict that challenges us. It's how we defend ourselves. It's how we get better, right? As individuals, as communities. Then there were the conversations that were stuck in anger and frustration. There were, there were not those glimpses of curiosity and understanding and humor. There was just the same emotions over and over again. And those are closer to what we might call high conflict. So high conflict is the kind of conflict where it usually becomes an us versus them conflict, although it can start over literally anything. <laughs> and it's the kind of conflict that kind of takes on a life of its own. So it's like a perpetual motion machine. And when you get into this level of conflict, um, you stop listening, right? You stop being curious and our brain behaves differently. So all of the normal cognitive biases that we have as humans become much more pronounced. We literally lose our peripheral vision uh, and figuratively. And so we make big mistakes in high conflict. So the big takeaway for me from all the research is that you know, the goal is not no conflict. We need conflict. That's how, you know, that's how we improve as a society. That's how we make each other better. The goal is good conflict as opposed to high conflict, right? So then it's the whole mystery for me, at least, was what causes one versus the other? And they found they could actually induce good conflict in the difficult conversations lab at Columbia over high conflict just by exposing people to a news story that was slightly more complicated, that instead of just having two sides, had three or four sides, all of which were true, by the way, because most people, there are usually more than two sides, right, to any big complicated issue. And people can, in other words, be primed for curiosity and complexity. And then they go in and have a more useful conflict conversation, which to me was incredibly exciting because that is what I want to do, ideally, right, as a journalist, is I want to spark curiosity in a time of false simplicity. Wow. All right. You've just packed in so much in that response. <laughs> Sorry, I want to tease some things out. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, just the biology of it is extraordinary. I mean, you're saying we lose peripheral visions, um, but describe the emotions yeah. that are involved. Um, I mean, is there complexity to the emotions? In conflict, we, we certainly know that there's anger, but right. emotionally, what, what is going on? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I think this is what's really neglected uh, very often is we, 
we kind of conflate everything together, but there are different emotions and the emotions really do matter more than I had realized. So anger is okay. Anger and all the conflict research, anger is, you know, it can be energizing, initiatory. There are lots of good things that can come out of anger, but anger is different than contempt, right? So anger at some level suggests you want the other person to be better and contempt or disgust suggests you've given up on the other person or side. So you can see that contempt is a lot harder to work with, right? And this is true in all the marriage research and it's true in the Middle East and it's true in all of the conflict research. It's very consistent. This is another interesting thing. You know, our behavior in conflict is very similar in very different contexts because it's very hardwired, right? How we're gonna behave when we or our group feels threatened. Um, So there's a lot we can learn, I think, about political conflict from looking at marital conflict and vice versa. But anyway, I'm getting, I'm once again getting sidetracked. To answer your question, the emotions do really matter. Anger is, is something you can really work with. Um, same with sadness, right? Same with fear to some extent. Contempt and, and disgust are much, much more difficult to work with. And one of the most underappreciated force, forces driving all high conflict I've ever seen is humiliation. So that's one to really be on the lookout for. Uh, Humiliation is Evelyn Lindner, who studies conflict, calls it the nuclear bomb of the emotions. Um, It is the kind of thing that will supersize a conflict overnight if people feel humiliated. Now, sometimes, you know, you didn't intend for them to feel humiliated. It's a subjective thing, right? Like a lot of emotions, but it is driving a lot of very violent and dangerous conflict. So it's something that I think we should talk more about. Hmm. All right, we're gonna get to that humiliation part, um, particularly in larger group dynamics, but I wanna pick up on the thought that you shared that there's a similar pattern, whether it's a marital conflict at home or I imagine a work conflict and and then the biggest conflicts on the world stage, there, there's kind of mm-hmm. a certain structure to it. Can, can you describe, um, let's begin with the good conflict. Um, what is some structure of a good conflict? You, you talk about certain emotions being there, but are there certain communication patterns? What makes a conflict a good conflict? Yeah. So uh, one of the things I did for this research was to follow um, conflict experts who work on like really difficult, ugly, you know, labor disputes or divorces, right? And try to figure that out. Like, what is the difference? So one of the differences is... Um, And by the way, I think we're all capable of both. So I don't think it's like, you know, I mean, we've all probably felt or witnessed both good conflict and high conflict, right? Um, There is a feeling of being stuck in high conflict. So that is something I think a lot of people can relate to where you're just going back and forth over the same, the same thing. And it almost feels like your ship's passing in the night, right? Like you're not communicating. So in good conflict, there is usually more questions get asked and more listening is happening. So there's still the possibility to be surprised (laughs) by the other person, right? So one of the best ways to cultivate good conflict on purpose in all the research and and all the sort of day-to-day experience of people who work in a lot of conflict is to do what's sometimes called tactical listening or looping. There's different words for it, but, you know, it's a way to use a very disciplined uh, approach to try to listen to what the other person's saying, even as you disagree, especially as you disagree, and then 
try to distill it into the most elegant language you can muster and check with them if you got it right. And you have to ask with genuine curiosity, which is, you know, you have to actually feel curious, which is hard. So I think curiosity is the most important emotion in good conflict. And then it's, you can use listening and questioning tactics to try to provoke curiosity in yourself and the other person, but it is contagious, which is good. Um, but you're trying to get an opening. You're trying to find a way to create some space, right? In the conflict, because otherwise you're going to miss things. Like you're going to make big mistakes. And we see this over and over again. Um, in every high conflict I've studied, people eventually end up mimicking the behavior of their opponents to one degree or another. And eventually almost everyone suffers to different degrees. And it's almost always the kids, children who suffer the most, right? Whether it's a high conflict divorce or high conflict politics or gang violence, it's almost always the same. So what you're trying to do with curiosity and questions and deep listening is to interrupt the cascading assumptions and stereotypes and prejudices that lead us into high conflict. All right. This, this is really helpful. You describe this good conflict and kind of elements of it and things that make for success, the, the listening, the tactical question asking, the, the sense of potential surprise and curiosity. Um, do the same thing for describing high conflict and the things that are breaking in down. You've, you've used emotions, contempt, um, you know, disgust. And, but if, if you break that down for us and um, give us some sense, as you did for the good conflict, of the components of high conflict. Yeah, yeah. So I, I focus in the book on four particular accelerants or fire starters of high conflict that are important to look out for and have been really helpful to me in my work and in my personal life to be aware of. So one of them we've talked about, which is humiliation. And that's a really important one. Nelson Mandela has a great quote, which is, there is no one more dangerous than one who's been humiliated, even when you've humiliated him rightly. I love that little add-on at the end there. And uh, so that's a big one. Uh, the other fire starters are um, corruption. So if a system is corrupt or perceived to be corrupt, that's when people will take justice into their own hands, right? So you sort of see vigilante behavior, lawlessness, that kind of thing, which is important because among other things, violence escalates high conflict really quickly. Um, and you get these feedback loops of revenge and fear. Um, so corruption and humiliation. And then the next one that I think is underappreciated is conflict entrepreneurs. So these are people or platforms, companies um, that exploit conflict for their own ends. And sometimes this is for profit, but I find that just as often it's for um, something more subtle, like attention or a sense of belonging or power of some kind, right? And those are just as powerful as profit-seeking uh, conflict entrepreneurs. So often conflict entrepreneurs have had a lot of trauma in their own life that they haven't dealt with, not always, but we're all capable of acting like conflict entrepreneurs, particularly when we're in institutions or systems that are designed to reward conflict entrepreneurs, like politics in the United States today, like a lot of uh, news media outlets, and uh, like social media, most social media is designed to reward conflict entrepreneurship. Um, so it's important, again, to just notice when people in your feed or on your cable TV channel or in your own personal life 
seem to delight in the conflict, right? They seem to actually come alive in conflict and uh, they might be getting something out of it that is not what it seems. Um, and then distance yourself from the conflict entrepreneurs. And then the fourth fire starter that tends to lead to high conflict is the presence of binary group identities. So us versus them, Democrats versus Republicans, right? We know from the research that countries that have more than two political parties tend, not always, but tend on average to have less political polarization. Um, black versus white, right? There's a million examples. But anytime we kind of collapse complicated humans into just two buckets, two camps, right? We are making mistakes. You can't generalize about the hearts of 75 million American voters you've never met. You just can't do it. It's, mad it's madness, right? But it feels very doable when you're in the conflict. All right, you, you've really given us some very helpful categories. Um, I wanna ask, how does a person who is generally good, I mean, good-hearted and warm and friendly. How does a good person get captured by high conflict? I think it's totally natural and understandable. Yeah, because when we are wired to really feel the pain that our group experiences, and there's been some really cool research on this where they look at people's brains when someone in their family or someone they care about or someone they just identify with, maybe it's, you know, their sports team or whatever, gets uh, an electric shock. When the other person gets the electric shock, your brain lights up in the same way as if it was happening to you. So it feels like pain, right? And there's actually a whole uh, term for um, collective pain that's not physical, but it's social pain, right? That, that sense of being um, excluded or ostracized, if your group is somehow uh, forcibly brought low in your eyes, that is not different in the way we experience it than physical pain. So I think evolutionarily, this probably served us pretty well, right, for a long time because we didn't have to interact with a lot of different groups all the time. And we weren't constantly bombarded with news and information that were very vivid about other groups and so-called threats to our, to our own groups, right? So um, it kind of breaks down in the modern world, which is on the one hand daunting, on the other hand, just like a lot of things, we can evolve culturally to do better, right? It's not, fixed. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a very natural instinct to get pulled. In fact, one of the stories, so for the book, I followed people who were stuck in high conflict of all kinds, and then shifted into good conflict, just to see, are there patterns? Like, how do you do this? How can we learn from you? And the first person I followed was a conflict expert named Gary Friedman, who's helped, you know, thousands of clients get out of really ugly conflicts. And then his neighbors convinced him to run for office a few years ago in California, thinking, you know, who better to fix politics than Gary, who knows so much about conflict and is so uh, even keeled, such a good listener, and all these things. And as he put it, it took him about an eighth of a second before he got sucked into the high conflict in his own little town, which he's not proud of, but he lost two years of his life and peace of mind to these, you know, really what seemed to an outsider to be really petty over like water rate increases and bus stops and things like that. Um, but then he realized what had happened and he began shifting, painstakingly, purposefully shifting out of high conflict 
into good conflict, right? So if we think back to those fire starters we talked about, he had to go back and unwind some of those things. So he distanced himself from the conflict entrepreneurs in his life, particularly one who was advising him politically. And he turned instead to his wife, who was someone who was beloved in the community and, and knew people very well. So it was not as quick to kind of lump them together, right? Um, and he worked very hard not to humiliate his opponents. So instead of holding a public meeting and asking gotcha questions and other things that are kind of, at this point, happen on automatic in national politics, he would pause and see if he could address the problem without public audiences, right? Without publicly embarrassing the person, because you just can't get anything done if you keep doing that. So this is all by way of saying anyone, including, you know, one of the world's foremost experts on conflict is capable of getting pulled into high conflict and capable of shifting out of it. Okay. This is an individual who has worked um, in these areas of conflict, and you've described how this individual could go from good to, you know, high conflict and then back again. Uh, talk a little bit about groups. What happens when communities are in conflict and it's multifactorial now, right? Because there are yeah. many different personalities and you've talked about gang violence. I, I don't know if there's a story or something that gives us a little bit of a um, concrete uh, imagination of how actually groups of people can um, engage in good conflict, devolve into high conflict and back and forth. Yeah, so this, this is where it's like a paradox, right? Like groups can escalate conflict and make it very dangerous very quickly, right? Depending on the group leader, whether there's a conflict entrepreneur present, whether that conflict entrepreneur is framing everything as a humiliation or a disrespect, even if it's not. Um, groups can also have the opposite effect. And we've all seen this, right? If you're part of a group where the norms and traditions and rituals are clearly um, aligned to discourage vitriol and dehumanization of people you disagree with, then most people go along with that, you know? So leaders can also have this effect of um, creating useful conflict where, where people can learn from each other, uh, open their minds to information they didn't want to hear, um, and even tolerate the discomfort of disagreement, which is really important, you know, that's life. And so we can see it go in both directions. An example of this would be in the book, I uh, followed a, a synagogue in New York City called B'nai Jeshurun that uh, was really imploding in conflict a few years back over Israel. So the rabbis were sort of more left-leaning. They had, you know, made some statements that um, were supportive of the Palestinians. This erupted in a sort of unexpected level of conflict internally. And as a big influential, um, you know, historical synagogue, and all of a sudden the rabbis felt like there was like an out of control wildfire. And people they had loved and respected and thought loved and respected them were saying terrible things about them, uh, often to the, to the newspapers, right, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, which leads to humiliation, which escalates the conflict. And they tried for a while to avoid it, to make it go away, all the things we all naturally want to do in conflict. And uh, it just kept getting worse. People were leaving the synagogue, people were withholding donations, and it was pretty awful all the way around. And so... Um, luckily, one of the congregants encouraged the rabbis to consider um, doing something very different, 
and as opposed to continuing to fight the way they were or quitting and going to a synagogue that more aligned with their politics, which they had thought about, right, which they could do, or uh, just trying to avoid and suppress the conflict, which is what happens in most American synagogues over Israel, they decided to do a fourth option that was sort of less well-traveled, which is to lean into the conflict, get very curious about each other and have guardrails, but have hard conversations with each other that were guided and facilitated. They brought in some uh, conflict mediators who had worked in the Middle East called Resetting the Table. They had a bunch of you know, living room conversations with each other. They had lectures, they had webinars. They had to learn that kind of listening we were talking about earlier and realize that in fact, there were not two camps on Israel. There were many. And in fact, a lot of people felt a lot of internal conflict about these issues, right? Like they felt a real sense of loyalty and obligation to, to Israel and its government. And at the same time, they felt a real sense of sadness and despair about the conflict. And the more space you could create for people to tell those stories in a personal way, the more they could hear each other and tolerate the discomfort. Um, so they really changed how they deal with conflict which was very cool. And they did it in a way that they could then, every new conflict, so then a couple of years later, big conflict started to arise over whether they should do interfaith marriages, right? Could have easily gone down the same destructive path, but they had these rituals in place. They started having these difficult conversations. They knew how to listen to each other. And, you know, the cool thing is, and I'll stop talking about this, but the cool thing is I, I followed them as they did this also with Trump supporters and, and people who they disagree with on politics in different states over time. And the, and the thing that happens that's really unexpected is once you experience good conflict like this, you want more. Like, it's very unintuitive. I mean, they found that they, they loved that feeling of being open and curious and surprised and also standing their ground and being honest about what they really felt. That combination was so rare and precious, but it was... It was, there was almost like a euphoria that you could sense when you watched, when you watched these encounters happen. So, so it's kind of hopeful the way that once you experience good conflict, you want more. Well, that's challenging, inspiring, and as you noted, um, often quite rare to see uh, groups of people move from there's good conflict, uh, high conflict, and then back again, and then to be able to use that pattern, these techniques, um, into other settings, and maybe even welcome as as the community learns to grow. But you know, part of this good conflict, I would imagine, is still the desire to change another person's perspective or yeah. to change their behavior. Yeah, and yet sure. we're also being encouraged by you and this kind of research that you've done that, you know, listening with curiosity, with a you know, requisite humility rather than humiliating others. How, how do you balance that? You know, the sense of, okay, being curious, I want to be open and surprised, but I also want to change your opinion yeah. or your yeah. behavior, particularly yeah. if there is, in fact, I imagine in the work of gang violence, um, there is behavior you really do want to change because it's life-threatening. Right. It's urgent. So 
There's, there are a lot of paradoxes in the study of intractable conflict, and, the, and you've hit on uh, one of them, which is you cannot persuade people by trying to persuade them. You must make them feel heard before they will listen. So it's like people have to feel seen, heard, and understood the way they are before they'll consider changing. It's almost like a game of chicken, right? Like who's going to listen first? And let's talk about the gang violence example because it's, it's so extreme and so um, such high stakes. So for the book, I followed Curtis Toller, who was a pretty high-ranking gang leader in Chicago for many years, himself a you know, self-admitted conflict entrepreneur, um, involved in a long-standing vendetta with the gangster disciples over what he perceived as a series of really tragic injustices that they had inflicted on his side. And this went on and on for years, continues to go on in different forms. Um, And eventually, Curtis hit what's called a a saturation point in the research. So this is when people who are stuck, trapped in the thrall of high conflict suddenly have a momentary pause. There's some kind of shock, something happens. For him, it was at his son's eighth grade graduation. (laughs) And all of a sudden you start to realize that the losses of this conflict outweighed the gains a long time ago, that the suffering that has happened is no longer justifiable, if it ever was. And this is a really important moment, right? Because in that moment is when you can shift into good conflict or the moment can pass and then you just double down, right, on high conflict. And lots of people who do shift out go through, go back and forth a few times, right? Um, But what Curtis had and what it's so important that everyone has is people just outside the conflict who welcomed him home, right? In his case, it was a priest in Chicago um, named Father Flager, who was very involved in trying to prevent violence on the South side of Chicago for many, many years. And he had seen Curtis from since he was a little boy, he'd seen him cause all kinds of mayhem. And then he also noticed when he started to be doing something different and he invited him in and he invited him to help um, create a peace league for rival gangs to play basketball against each other. And um, he helped support him as did many others, right. In creating a new identity and buttressing his existing identities outside of the conflict just super important. So this is a long way of answering your question about how do we persuade people when direct argument doesn't work, which is almost always true in high conflict, right? Um, How do we persuade people? And there's a lot on the line. So relationship has to come first. And if you don't have time for relationship, then try for rapport. And, and this comes from the research on crisis de-escalation as well. So if you're dealing with someone who could become violent, who you don't really know in public, if you're a police officer or ER nurse, whatever, you have to earn rapport with that person very quickly. And there are lots of ways to do this, but the point is trying to make your case directly and persuade them to, to not be violent. All your instincts around that will fail you. It just doesn't work. So first, you have to have some kind of human connection. Um, And 
that means that if you have people in your life who are in thrall to high conflict or to conspiracy theories or to dangerous ideology even, it is very important to try to, if you can safely, try to retain some thread of relationship. Because what can happen is they can hit that saturation point and be ready to shift, but they can't do it alone. Nobody can do it alone. It's just too hard, just based on how social humans are. So that's a not very satisfying answer, is it? But Well, it gives us some, some things to pursue. I mean, this notion of rapport is... Um... While difficult, it's something that we can access. You know, we may not have deep relationships, but certainly in community settings or within the home or uh, workplace, um, the development of rapport, um, the yeah. ability to ask these tactical questions. I mean, these these are something that you know, gives us hands-on stuff. But what about society at large as a whole? I mean, we're obviously experiencing deep divisions. And then you throw social media into the mix. Mm. And it seems that um, developing rapport, uh, the kind of tactical question asking, that's really hard to do in yeah. social media. And uh, you talk about conflict entrepreneurs. Um, and you also mentioned something in the context of that about social media. So the, the question is, you know, in, in society at large, when we have these divisions and these complexities, and then we have the mix of interaction on social media. How do we extricate ourselves or do this stuff of good conflict management uh, through social media? Is that even a possibility? Oh, totally. A hundred percent. So one of the things that is always astonishing to me is how it feels to us like these social media platforms are from God. Like they're not from God. They were designed by humans with a lot of unintended consequences, and some intended, but mostly I think unintended, and the algorithms that are in place. So right now, right now, there are pretty good algorithms that have already been written that could right now boost everything you see on Facebook and Twitter to be um, much more humble, open, curious, understanding, honest, all those things. It's, not, it's actually not that hard. <laughs> It's not perfect, but these were designed by humans and they can be redesigned by humans for something else. So if you look at Wikipedia or LinkedIn, there are platforms that everyone's allowed on where the interaction is different than it is on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook. Um, and there are different rules and norms and cultural guardrails on those sites, right? And often it's the same people. I have seen the same people act in incredibly um, reckless ways on Facebook or Twitter. And then they're a different person on other platforms or certainly in person. So we can, I would argue most of the greatest accomplishments of humans have been done in good conflict, not high conflict, but we have to design for it, right? And we have to ask for it. So 
one of the things I always encourage people to do, especially as we start looking ahead to the midterm elections where we know political violence is going to escalate in the United States, unfortunately, it's very predictable given the level of tension that we're at right now. Right now, you can go on social media and say very clearly that you, um, you condemn all kinds of political violence, all violence. It just makes things worse. It's not okay. It's never okay. And the research shows that when you do this, even if you're not a very powerful, influential leader, when you do this, it actually works. It actually lowers people's support for violence. So it's a really small thing, right? But one of the tricks of high conflict is that the most extreme voices get louder and louder and louder. And everybody else kind of flees the scene. So I think it's incumbent on us, all of us who are exhausted with the conflict we're seeing, who want something better, to speak up. And when you see someone from your group, maybe it's your political party or your town, whatever, actively try to resist the pull of high conflict, maybe by, you know, stating a truth that people don't want to hear and trying to do it in a way that is hearable, really try to support that person. You know, send them an attaboy on Twitter or reach out with a phone call if you know them. Those people, that's a very lonely place to be, to resist the pull of high conflict when everyone around you wants you to join in. You've been immersed in this research. You've obviously experienced, you know, as every human, uh, personal and community conflicts, and you've applied some of these principles to improve. Um, so as, you, as you've done this research, you've experienced community life, um, trying to overcome divisions, what, what brings you hope for the future? I'm a big believer that there's huge unmet demand in the American public for a different kind of politics, different kind of journalism. I think part of the rise of podcasts, right, has to do with this yearning for a different way to talk about hard things. And do they all succeed? No, right? And a lot of people still aren't listening to podcasts yet. But I think there's a huge unmet demand for a different kind of conflict that feels more interesting, more surprising, more useful, because we are stuck with each other. I mean, this is, this is one of the most important things for people to realize when they're going through a really ugly divorce. This is one of the things I learned from a lot of the divorce mediators I, I met. At some point, they have to understand that the, if they have kids with someone, they're never going to be out of each other's lives. You know, if you can get divorced, but you know, your kid might get sick and be in the hospital. Your kid might get married. Your kid might have a baby one day. You have got to deal with each other. And that, when that clicks over in your brain, <laughs> A lot of things change. And the same is true with political conflict. Like we are, we are married and we can get divorced, but we got kids together. So we have got to find ways to work with each other. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that and feel deep sadness and worry about the future of the country. So then the question is, can we meet that demand? Can creative, curious, risk-taking, innovators and content creators and politicians meet that demand. 
Our guest on today's conversation has been Amanda Ripley. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you very much, Amanda. National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.